welcome to Modern Anarchy, the podcast featuring real conversations with conscious objectors to the status quo. I'm your host, Nicole. On today's episode, we have harm reduction therapist and co-founder of Alchemy Therapy, Irina Alexander. Join us for our conversation about the need to deconstruct the messaging we have been sold about drugs and step into a more research-backed understanding. Together, we talk about how larger systems impact our drug use, the importance of community connection, and coming out of the psychedelic closet. Hello, dear listener. I am so delighted to be sharing this special episode with you today. This conversation is rooted in the harm reduction clinical training that I have been getting at Sauna Healing Collective with the psychedelic integration therapy and the ketamine-assisted psychotherapy that they run at this site, and their larger community of researchers and psychotherapists and activists that are changing the narrative and supporting our communities in this work, people like Irina Alexander, who I am so excited to share with you today, dear listener. And, you know, it's important because this is going to lay the foundation for many more conversations that I will be hosting in this space about psychedelics, about intimacy, about our relationships, about sexuality. And so, I'm really excited to lay the groundwork for those future conversations starting today with a discussion on harm reduction and pleasure enhancement. We have to do both sides. It is not just about harm reduction. It is also about the pleasure and living an enjoyable life, right? But in many ways, we are still working towards even the acceptance of harm reduction. And we'll talk more about what that means in the episode today, but We all do harm reduction in many ways in our lives, right? When we wear a seatbelt in our car, when we use a condom when having sex, there are multiple ways that we use harm reduction to live with pleasure and enjoy our life. And so this conversation is building on that paradigm. And dear listener, if you have a moment, I would love if you could go to the show notes and check out the TED Talk about Rat Park. That is what the title of this episode is connected to, and I think it would provide a lot of context for you going into this conversation if you have the time to go there first and listen to that TED Talk. I highly recommend it, but if not, we will talk about it during today's episode. And what that research points to is the importance of looking at our relationships, not just our relationships to one another, but also our relationships to our larger society, our ecology, right? What is the cage that we are living in? And Irina talks about this, how the research has shown that the majority of, you know, complicated drug use is really about connection and feeling isolated and So many people, because of the messaging around drugs and drug use, feel such deep shame that they're unable to talk about it or feel unsafe because of the racial discrimination that has existed for centuries within America that has targeted specific groups of people, right? It is not always safe to talk about drug use 
And so part of the conversation today is hopefully illuminating the need for more community and letting go of the shame around drug use so that we have less deaths, right? Bare minimum that we have less deaths with drug use, but also so that we can have pleasurable drug use. In our systems of racial capitalism and all the other forms of oppression, it makes sense that to cope with this cage that we live in, we would use drugs, right? We also use drugs for pleasure-seeking and other sorts of things, but the reality is to cope with our cage, it makes sense to use drugs as the solution, as Irina says, to that larger problem. So as a paradigm, we need to be looking at the cage, not the individual, the cage, and that is a research-backed paradigm to understand our drug use and you know, part of this conversation, I even get into, you know, the humanness of what it means to be a therapist and talking about my own personal use or other guests' personal use of substances in this space. And, you know, there's this huge fear of, oh, what does it mean if your therapist puts all this stuff out there, right? God forbid they're also a human, right? We can talk about professionalism culture and where that comes from and that world where we have to disconnect from our humanness and our real experience of reality to present this professional, all put together, completely blank slate persona is really helpful. We can ask lots of questions about that. And I know that this podcast and the community that we have built together in this space has a global reach. So there are listeners out there that are not from America and potentially you might be from one of those countries where drug use has been decriminalized. So you might be hearing this point of conversation where Irene and I talk about my fears of coming out of the psychedelic closet and how scary it is to name that. And you might be listening from another country going, why Why is that scary? That's so strange that those Americans are still dealing with those antiquated paradigms of drug use. And I hear you, dear listener, and I hope that our society continues to expand because, you know, Portugal is one of those countries that has decriminalized small possession of drugs, right? And it's interesting. You know, what country has the least amount of overdoses and least amount of drug deaths? Yeah, that's Portugal. So it's almost like our paradigm of restriction on drug use is not necessarily grounded in actual protection for our well-being. It's almost like it's grounded in something else. And I wonder what that could be, dear listener. I just hope that we continue to grow and expand. And if you're new to hearing these ideas, that you come with an open heart to the ways that we have been indoctrinated, particularly in America, with these problematic, non-research-based understandings of drug use. And I plan to have many more conversations about this in the podcast space, right? We are talking about sex, relationships, and liberation on this podcast and relationships in the true relationship anarchy sense, you know, does not just relate to our relationships with lovers and our community. It's also about our relationships to these larger systems, our relationships to ecology, our relationships to drugs, our relationships to higher powers and religion. I mean, there's so many pieces here 
that all create the identity of who we are and how we move about through the world. So this is just the beginning of many more conversations with other healers and therapists and theorists and thinkers about drug use and about our pleasure. And I am so excited to share this episode with you today. And I hope you walk away from this conversation learning something new, feeling inspired to change the conversations that are happening within your community because we can make enormous change through these direct conversations with our community. And in that, I hope that we not only save lives, the many lives that have been lost because of the war on drugs and the shame and the isolation with that, but also that we can step into deeper, more fulfilling pleasure. All right, dear listener, I am sending you so much love on this fall Wednesday morning, and I hope that you enjoy today's episode. All right, let's tune in. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So then the first question I like to ask each guest is, how would you introduce yourself to the listeners? How would I introduce myself? It's interesting because recently I've been introducing myself with my name first as either Irina or Irina, depending on how Russian you want to get with it is usually what I say. I was born in Russia and moved when I was five. And I feel like the process of acculturation was such mm. a big one with, with any immigrant families. But, you know, we like we changed our last name and uh, changed the pronunciation of my first name. So I've recently been like, no, like they're both me, both different aspects of me and then when people are like no but like but who are you but what's your real name I'm like they're both my real name sure. like, both me yes <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly um so, so that's the first thing is my name and then usually you know I just say a little bit about me depending mm-hmm. on what role people are meeting me in but I like to introduce myself as a person first before I introduce myself as a therapist <laughs> Because I think the two things are are very similar, but oftentimes therapists forget that that piece of mm-hmm. oh right, we're also humans. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm a therapist. I have a really cute dog named Zaychik. Oh, he's a little bunny in Russian. Cute. Love that. <laughs> I'm like looking at him right now. He's oh. curled up in a little ball. He's adorable. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm also I'm a harm reductionist. I am the clinical director of Alchemy Community Therapy Center in Oakland, California on Ohlone territory. And yeah, clinical director and co-founder of Alchemy. So so those are part of the reasons that I'm here today, I'm guessing. And also I work at the Harm Reduction Therapy Center. So I see myself as a street-based community therapist, um, mental health advocate, drug policy reformer, and a lot of other things I'm sure we'll get into. Yeah, yes. Thank you for sharing all that. 
I think the first thing I want to dive into is what is harm reduction? That wasn't something that I had learned anything about until I got into the field and particularly at sauna. So I'm curious if you could give a little bit of a layout of the land. I know that's a huge question. We could probably create a whole podcast just on that, right? But like just a little bit about what harm reduction is and the philosophy behind it. You know, I talk about this sometimes as funny enough being one of the things that I have the hardest time describing because I feel like a fish in water. Mm. I've been trained in harm reduction philosophy just my entire career, almost my entire life in some ways, just by the people that I've been surrounded by uh, within the drug policy reform scene. So in some ways, I always have to kind of like imagine stepping out of it and be like, wait, what what is this that I practice? What is this that I do? What is this concept? And really what what it comes down to for me is not being an asshole to other people mm-hmm. so much of the time. It's just respecting people's dignity, respecting people's autonomy, respecting people's choices that they have in their own lives and really seeing themselves as the expert of their lives as opposed mm-hmm. to me imposing my own set of values and so-called expertise on their their life. And instead building a collaborative relationship where we're able to talk about, you know, what are your goals and what risks are you willing to take and why and what choices are you making? Mm -hmm. Because there is a reason to all of the choices that you're making and really understanding that is going to support as opposed to saying, don't do this thing, don't do that thing because it's bad for you. (laughs) Right, 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 right. And so I'm curious then if you could get into more of like how that relates to substance use. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I feel like oftentimes I'm actually doing the opposite is mm. describing how harm reduction applies to the rest of life. Sure. Because oftentimes people think about harm reduction as substance use related only. And in fact, I do the opposite of saying it's not just about people's use of substances, which in that case, it's to me, it feels pretty clear. It's like, you know, people use drugs, there are risks involved in using drugs. And with the harm reduction philosophy, we meet people where they're at in their drug use and in their beliefs around drugs. And instead of trying to to push them one way or another, we say, cool, what do you like about that? What don't you like about that? Where do you want to get to with that? And really focus on as a relationship that a person has. I, I really think about it it's similar to relationship that relationships that humans have with other humans, yeah. like a relationship to a drug. Let's talk about that relationship. Mm-hmm. And then people are like, oh, well, I don't use drugs. And I'm like, first off, you probably do because caffeine is a drug, tobacco yes. is a drug, alcohol is a drug. Yep, yep, yep. And second off, even if you don't use drugs, we all apply harm reduction philosophy to our lives. If you get into a car and you put a seatbelt on, that is reducing harm. And I oftentimes like to play around with the terminology too. Instead of harm reduction, I always in a little bit of a joking way, but also in a reality-based way, say benefit enhancement. Ah, (laughs) (laughs) I literally have written down pleasure enhancement as where I want to get to in this conversation. (laughs) Oh, awesome. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. It's really not just about how do we make our lives potentially less harmful because ultimately the ultimate goal is about benefit. It's about living a life full of happiness and pleasure and reconnecting to, to things like joy. Yeah. But Irina, if you come to someone, I know I love playing the devil's advocate here and like getting the theory out by asking the questions. Um, oh, I'm ready. <laughs> but when you come to a client and then you ask them, why do you enjoy that substance? Are you not further supporting their use of that drug? How, why are you doing that? That's a great question. You know, it's funny because oftentimes 
clients will respond in similar ways. Mm. Like clients will almost push back against that question and be like, no, 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 this is bad. This is bad. I'm, I'm doing this bad thing and it's bad. And I'm not going to answer the question of why is this helping or why is this working or why or what do yeah. I like about it? Like, what are you talking about? You know, yeah. what are you a therapist? You call yourself a therapist? Yeah. <laughs> and it takes a second of kind of of staying in that space with someone and really sitting with it and being like, okay, let's explore this a little more. Let's talk about this. So, has anyone ever asked you this question? Mm. And they're like, of course not. What are you talking about? Drugs are bad. <laughs> And then it's like, okay, well, there's probably a reason you're doing it. You're doing anything in life. There are reasons behind the actions that we do. Sometimes those reasons aren't reasons that we want to admit. Sometimes those reasons are so-called good reasons, so-called bad reasons, right? Depending on our own judgments. Right. And we're not going to understand the entire relationship if we don't also understand the pieces that work well. Right. Just like in any relationship, right? Um, if someone is dating someone where there are a lot of negative parts to that relationship, there's a reason that they're staying. Mm -hmm. And if you don't understand the reason that they're staying, then you're not going to be able to shift that dynamic without actually understanding what they're getting out of it first. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so being able to have that conversation probably opens up so much for the person who has so much shame and negativity going on about that relationship that they have, right? To a substance, to a person, to anything. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And so I think I want to get even deeper into, I mean, and I also remember you talking about the, I think, people who use substances to be able to go to work, right? People who are yeah. don't have a home and people who use, like, there's so much nuance to why people do this. And so I kind of want to get into also the rat park, if you could talk a little bit about that, because I think that's huge here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so much of substance use is, so much of challenging substance use, I'd say, is related to a feeling of just disconnection and not being in community with others. So a lot of it is is really based on, there There have been a lot of studies at this point just around, like, what fuels substance use, what fuels challenging patterns of substance use. And one of the biggest things that people keep coming back to is, is, yeah, feeling disconnected from community, feeling disconnected from society, feeling like we are individuals in this system, this structure that is making us just work, 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 and mm-hmm. making us stuck in these cycles of capitalism that that turn us really away from humans and into just things that produce, <laughs> things yeah. that get things done, you know, um, really objectifying the, the whole system is. Yeah, so I, you know, I feel like I could go on and on about know, this, but <laughs> really one of the biggest things is like a lot of times challenging relationships to drug use, I, I don't see that as the problem. I see the problem as the bigger system. The drugs are a solution to a problem a uh-huh. lot of the time. And the, the problem a lot of the time is this bigger system of dehumanizing other people and you know, racism, sexism, classism, all of those things that people are just needing to find ways to cope with. And one of the ways that people cope with it is by changing the way that that they feel in mm-hmm. a given moment. And one of the ways that you can change how you feel is by using drugs <laughs> you know? right. and then going to work and doing all of the things that unfortunately you 
have to do in order to survive in today's society right including that caffeine when you got to wake up to that job that you hate uh, just throw that right. one out there too you know mm -hmm. what i mean seriously yeah seriously or the alcohol at the end of the day after the job that you hate <laughs> yes 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 yeah. yes yes and to clue you in dear listener when i had said rat park that is in reference to Johan Hari's TED Talk, a journalist that had done a ton of research on addiction and came across this study where the researcher had placed rats in a cage where they had the option of water or cocaine and heroin water, and they left them in the cage to see what would happen. When the rats were in that cage, they decided to drink the cocaine water, the heroin water, and overdosed frequently on that, right? Mm -hmm. And then another mm -hmm. researcher came in in the 70s and was like, hey, that seems like an interesting experiment. The rats have nothing else to do. Let's make this whole cage and park for the rats to have connection and to have pleasure mm -hmm. and other sorts of things. And the overdose rates dropped significantly. The rats yeah. no longer wanted to drink the heroin and cocaine mm -hmm. water. And so like when right. we're thinking about these relationships with substances, we're so stuck in that first narrative of like, well, there's the cocaine and the heroin water and they overdose and they couldn't control themselves rather than taking the lens that you're talking about, which is what's the larger society? What's the larger society that's bringing people to want to use the substances in this way? Right, right. Exactly, exactly. That, that's such a good example, too, because ultimately we are drug seeking as animals because the drugs that we get from social connection are also a type of drug. You know, we, we get oxytocin, we get serotonin, we get dopamine. That's all pushing the drug button. <laughs> so if we can't push that in a way that's that's maybe safer or most social, more socially acceptable than we find other ways to push that, like in that example. I think one of the, the things that I find people do sometimes is they'll kind of like use that example to still put it on the individual of like, you know, well, like people need to then focus on making friends and building community instead mm -hmm. of doing drugs. That's <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> like, oh God, like you're missing the point. You're really missing the point. Yeah. It's, such a bigger frame than that. How so? Maybe someone's not catching that. Like, what is that bigger frame? Yeah, the, the bigger frame is that, you know, if people could, then they would, <laughs> I think. If people could take time from the nine to five, I mean, nine to five, I feel like nowadays is a blessing for so many people. So many people work just like 24 seven nonstop and barely make enough to survive especially in the Bay Area with the prices as high as they are. Mm. But yeah, I, I think that so much of it is, is that people don't have time in the current systems that we have. They don't have time. They don't have capacity. We are living in a society that is in a place of scarcity. That's the place that everyone comes from is the scarcity-driven mindset of there's not enough resources. There's not enough, hell, like clean water in so many cities where environmental racism exists. There's not enough food where food insecurity exists. There's not enough safety where black and brown people all over the place are getting locked up and killed and shot. If that's the the framework that so many people are living in, then how can you say, oh, just just set all of that aside and just just go hang out with a friend. Mm -hmm. Just go go make some social connections. You'll be good. You just need to do that. Why are you doing drugs? <laughs> Scary. Right. right. Scary. Mm -hmm. 
hella yeah. scary. Yeah, uh, scary. Mm-hmm. Which is why I try to talk about it and, you know, hopefully like raise some collective consciousness about it and get conversations like this out into the world because like my view on drugs prior to going to grad school and clinical psychology and doing the psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and integration therapy training at Sauna Healing Collective was that, you know, drugs are so dangerous. If you have one, you know, little bit of drug, you're going to become addicted. And obviously drugs in that paradigm, you know, didn't include all drugs of coffee, alcohol, these other drugs that I was already using. So I had this idea of what like cocaine and heroin, cannabis, all these different pieces that if I just had one of them, then I would fall into addiction. And it was really interesting, right, to get graduate level training and to be working under other psychologists and to actually learn about the research on substance use. And it completely changed my paradigm after, you know, hearing about Rat Park and realizing that, you know, it is not the drugs themselves. Those are not bad. And particularly within a psychedelic space, right, we get this psychedelic exceptionalism that psychedelics are good and all the other drugs are bad. So that's another thing to watch out for. But getting into the actual research on this really changed my paradigm of how I understood drug and substance use. And it's just so radical to me that this research exists and it's out there. But so much of our collective narrative around these things is still this moral issue of presuming that the person who struggles with substance use is somehow less morally ethical or that these drugs themselves are so inherently dangerous. I mean, there's just so much education to, you know, share about these things and so much cultural shifts that we're moving towards as we, you know, shed the layers of the ways that the war on drugs has impacted us and D.A.R.E. and all these other programs that have really sold us these incorrect and, you know, not research-based paradigms on substance use. And in terms of the scary pieces, we can obviously bracket and set aside the reality where the doctors in our country get to decide which drugs are okay and which drugs are quote-unquote bad, right? If I prescribe you an opiate, that's okay because it's been prescribed. But if you use heroin, then that is bad, right? The power that that really is. But if we bracket that and set it aside, I think what I find so scary is that the providers with that power aren't necessarily taking in that larger systems view, which is so crucial here as the research showed, right? It's not necessarily the person that needs to be you know, blamed and have this moral attack on their character, which is frequently what the messaging has been around drugs, but rather they're missing the whole point of what is the cage that we are all living in and how is that impacting us, us ourselves as power, you know, providers, but also our clients and our friends and our community. I mean, without that perspective, I I think there's harm being done because we're not really pointing the arrow at the right thing. Yeah. And and that's just a huge issue is is how many healthcare professionals in general, but specifically mental healthcare professionals abuse their power and look at it as this top-down approach of I am the expert, I am the professional. And in fact, I'm going to label and diagnose you in this lens because you are the problem right so just to also think about how our career our actual profession is set up in a way 
to reinforce that dynamic of the individual is the problem. And we, we even have a book, the DSM, with letters and numbers and words that we use to just throw these things onto the person. And where's the DSM for society? <laughs> where's Ooh, that? Yeah. How come that doesn't exist? <laughs> totally, totally. Well, that's a bigger question. And maybe we can create that revolution together, right? There we go. There we go. Yeah. It would be very big. Yes. And it always was such a hard thing to sit in class. You know, I think it's particularly because I'm at Sauna, right? And getting these ideas and like, depending on where you're training, you might not get any of these ideas, right? right? Totally. But then I'm mm -hmm. in class and we're talking about like, yeah, if you use a substance every day, you know, that's problematic, yada, yada, yada. And then I'm like raising a question like, what about coffee? And they're like, well, that's, that's different. And you're just like, okay, mm -hmm. okay. 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 Yep. Okay. Okay. You know, yep. it's just like the math yep. doesn't math there at some point when you start to look at all these different things. Yeah. Or what about heroin? Right. What about heroin if they're doing it as someone who works at Johns Hopkins and they're doing Girl, it in a way that no one else, right. That no one else sees and they're quote successful in the ways that society wants them to be because they have privilege of being white and having access to wealth and all of those things, you know, it's like, at what point is it a problem and who gets to decide that? Well, therapist, Irina, who does get to decide that? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it is a good question because it really depends on where you are. And I think who gets to decide that is different than who should be getting that's to decide good, that. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, 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 yeah. The person, right? Like, how, what is this relationship to you? What is it causing for you? How is it affecting your life? Like getting more into that nuance, right? Right, right, exactly, exactly. And and it's, it's like in order to qualify for a substance use disorder, which which I like to say, I like to say like either, you know, chaotic substance use, challenging substance use, substance mm. use disorder, defining it in that way as opposed to just addiction. Like yeah. what does addiction even mean? It's so arbitrary and it's so individualized. And then, you know, for some people it carries so much stigma that what word just does carry yeah. a lot of stigma. Absolutely. So instead of using that word, I like to really break it down and be like, okay, what part of this relationship is challenging to you? And maybe someone's like, oh, it all works. You know, I, I really, I'm fine with smoking cigarettes, except for when I smoke them while I'm at work, you know, or except for when I smoke them by myself. I only like doing it socially with friends. Sure. Or they're like, I hate smoking cigarettes. I don't know why I'm doing it. And it's like, okay, let's talk about why you're doing it. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So holding that space to talk about what the relationship to that substance means for that person. And then I'm mm -hmm. also like thinking about the people who are impacted by other people who have, you know, maybe chaotic relationships to substances. I'm curious if there's anything that you, I know that's even a huge right, whole podcast again in and of itself, but like, what do you say to the people who are being affected by other people who have those more chaotic relationships? Like fa family, friends, sure, yeah. neighbors, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, there's so much to say about that. Yeah. I think a lot of times people go to this tough love approach mm -hmm. where they're kind of like okay if I don't set really firm limits and then the person won't change their relationship to drugs you know and it's actually on me to do something to change them and I think that's just a risky concept in any sort of behavioral change right. you know if you like to to start thinking about things as like 
first off, assuming that you have the power to change other people, and then assuming that it's your role to change other people. I think it's just a, a risky way of living life, <laughs> you know? yeah. and a way that's just not going to work. Honestly, <laughs> you might feel like it works if you push someone away for a moment, but they're going to keep doing what they're doing. They're just not going to tell you about it, yeah. <laughs> or they'll, you know, they won't talk to you anymore. So I would say with that, it's like the tough love approach doesn't really work, especially if you're trying to change people. I'd say learning the stages of change, motivational interviewing, where you really think into, you know, is this person wanting to change? Are they thinking about changing? Are they not thinking about it at all? And it's not even in their realm and maybe will never be. Are they in the process of preparing to make a change? Are they in the process of um, actually taking steps towards that change? Or are they actively making a change? And really assessing what part of the change cycle people are in before trying to push them into another one. Because trying to push someone into a different part of the change process is actually what, what creates, um, creates a lot of shame because they're not where they think they're supposed to be, right? And then that creates a dynamic where you're not actually listening. Right. And the most important thing to do is to listen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Essentially to be in deeper connection, right? When we're thinking about substances and the role that that plays in needing more connection, right? And safe mm-hmm. relationships, even when with a substance, with other people, society, right? To threaten connection, and your support to that person is like further like deepening the wound in a way but like yeah that that complicated nature of when does it become harmful to yourself to be close to that person mm-hmm. and all that sort of like oof totally totally which is i mean no way saying like you have to stick it out and you have to be right. there and you have to in some ways become this person's one and only support system or this person's therapist or anything like that like no you get to also set your own boundaries from a place that's actually protective of you not from a place that's trying to change the other person Mm -hmm. right so if you realize like hey this relationship is actually too much then you get to decide what relationships you get to be a part of Mm -hmm. and you get to decide how to participate in those relationships so maybe there is a person in your life, a loved one, a friend, where where you're like, you know, I'm, I need to have a hard conversation with you. And, you know, I actually can't stay in touch with you while you're using, or I can't stay in touch with you while you're behaving in these particular sorts of ways. Because it, maybe it's not about whether or not they're using a certain substance. Maybe it's actually about their behavior after they use a certain substance. Sure. You know, So like, as an example, you know, it's not about you drinking it's about you driving after drinking and being in a relationship where someone does that is is just too too intense you know that it's a perfectly appropriate limit for someone to set for themselves absolutely and that's like the nuance of the things that you don't see on a tiktok like psychology post right it's like so much nuance in these things when you really get down to it right yeah yeah context yeah well, and so much of it, I, I feel like, is like about the intention behind setting limits and boundaries. The intention isn't to change the other person. It's to protect yourself and to be respectful of yourself, which in a lot of ways is actually really great modeling, you know, for the other person if they are struggling with boundaries in their life to be like, hey, like, I love and respect you. And I really hope to reconnect at some point if things do change. 
if that's even on the table, which it doesn't have to be. There doesn't always have to be repair after a rupture. That's something that I think is important to say too. People get to decide not to be in connection with others and that's okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, especially even family, right? That's a big one culturally. Mm-hmm. That can be really hard for people sometimes to make that because sure. of the expectations, right? Of what it means to cut off in some ways, but there's reasons people make those choices, right? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think I've been excited to bring you onto this podcast in a lot of ways because, I mean, one, I've talked about the joys of doing, of enjoying substances on this podcast, right? And like, if mm-hmm. we're not talking about both sides, I think there's this space in the middle where it's like, well, what if I try a psychedelic? What if I try cannabis and I get completely addicted to the substance, right? So I think that's why you're like mm-hmm. the nuanced mm-hmm. nature of like the larger, you know, cage that we're in and the context and all of that might help to kind of like, assuage some of those fears because mm-hmm. I think there is a real reality that like people enjoy substances to like you know dampen pain and to mm-hmm. enjoy pleasure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah 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 and, and one can really shift into the other pretty quickly depending on what's going on in a person's life like I, I think about ketamine as a great example mm-hmm. of something that can because it's both a psychedelic and it's an anesthetic mm-hmm. and a dissociative anesthetic. So it's a really complex drug in that way, especially with people who who have chronic health issues, who have chronic mental health issues, you know, they might use a little bit of ketamine and find that they can access this place of joy and letting go and relaxation and maybe even not feeling pain for a little bit. And they might do that the first few times and just really like, oh, gosh, okay, that was that was a great escape. That was a great place to get to. I'm like, hell yeah, that's, that's amazing. That's, <laughs> like, we want to celebrate that. That's like, the goal is for, for us to live in a world where people have less pain mm-hmm. and more freedom and more joy, right? Yeah. And at what point, and I've seen this with ketamine in particular, I think in the queer community, I'd say like just more liberal communities, in, in the drug using community. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because it's it's just uh, um it's like short lasting it's relatively mm. short lasting in comparison to other psychedelics especially right. and people can just take little bumps of it and go along either partying or lying down for a little bit and just enjoying but because of the particular nature of it um i think that it's really easy to kind of straddle both of those worlds with it where you know, is this something that's actually benefiting my life? And does it ever shift into a place where it's actually taking away yeah. from my life and making it harder for me to actually do the, the things that I want to be doing? Um, so I think it, with all substances, with all behaviors in general, that's something to always be aware of. And at what point do you actually pause and reflect and reach out for support, which mm-hmm. is a lot easier to do if you know people who talk about substances in this more holistic way as opposed to this is only a bad thing right and I'm not going to talk to you if you do that right like that further disconnection and and losing your relationships right it's it's impossible to want to speak if that's what's going to happen right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm curious then like how do you kind of tell that difference between like enjoying and stepping into the pleasure and maybe getting into more of a chaotic space what does that look like for navigating Mm I, I'm like pausing for a second because as we were talking about that, I was reminded of a friend of mine who died, who mm-hmm. uh, was the, he was the person who started the San Francisco Psychedelic Society, my mm-hmm. friend Daniel. 
And he is just the perfect example of someone who was deep in the psychedelic community, deep in the process of wanting to develop community to bring together all of the psychedelic people. (laughs) Um, It was so good at doing that. And at the same time, he would use heroin every once in a while. And he felt so stigmatized by Mm -hmm. his heroin use, not because people specifically came to him saying you specifically as an individual shouldn't use heroin but because you know he had he heard people talking about it just because he didn't tell anyone about it right he just you hear enough in the psychedelic space especially this this concept that i think about of psychedelic exceptionalism that's like psychedelics are the the golden substance right they're the ones that get to like it's okay to use psychedelics but all the other drugs are terrible and you should stop using them Mm -hmm. um and it's it's such bullshit (laughs) first off uh anyone can have a challenging relationship or a beautiful relationship with any drugs i truly believe that yeah and you know with the case of my friend daniel because of the fact that he had to hide his heroin use he only told a few people about it and it was really sad to be one of the people who knew and Mm. and to see these conversations happen where I remember being in the room sometime or I specifically remember one conversation where he had just opened up to me about his use and then we were hanging out with a friend of ours who was like oh yeah like you know people who use heroin like they suck like there's there's no good reason to ever use heroin it's all just like such bullshit and I was just sitting there being like this is it and (sighs) you know maybe like six months after that he died from an overdose but it's it's the perfect example of how like even not even especially in this psychedelic kind of society or psychedelic whatever crew that that we're all a part of that that stigma can even be more amplified in those spaces Mm, I think yeah 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 I hear that yeah it's not the psychedelic it's the heroin you know like really putting it onto that drug right oh yeah yeah Mm. so if you and if you think about how race and class intersects with all of that too it's like okay the the rich white people drug is okay but Mm -hmm. the drug that people of color and people with less money are using those drugs are bad right my xanax is fine right yeah yeah but the xanax on the street is not okay yeah (laughs) oh yeah is sold on the street (laughs) right exactly it becomes very clear like the at least to me, it becomes very clear the absurdity of the system when you start to look at it like that and the different ways that, yeah, different, you know, substances are allowed and prescribed versus criminalized and the whole slew, right? I think the more people waking up to that, we all start to rally when you start to hear that, like the sheer absurdity of the system at times. And I think more people waking up to that gets more movement and more people wanting some sort of change in this. Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I'm just uh, this is where when we started at the beginning, I was like, I'm scared and we're probably going to get into it is trying to, you know, like my focus is on sex and relationships, right? I got into this field through my own sexual trauma that led to me volunteering in the community and then deciding to go into the field of psychology, yada, 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 we get here. My own journey with this has been 
that like substance have been incredibly healing, like to be able to have experiences on cannabis where my body has been able to like relax and be really present and to be able to have breath orgasms on other psychedelics. Like these are radical experiences that I had my own journey through of like reconnecting with my body. And so I'm just curious what the future looks like for that. But then when I start to talk about that, I just get so afraid. One, because like, obviously kind of like we were saying earlier, you know, like when you're a therapist, there's a level of discretion when you're saying this to people and how you're showing up. When I'm talking on a podcast, I don't know who's listening to this, but like, I just, you know, the more this comes into the, to the, my loo, like just the pleasure that I have felt in my body on psychedelics has been transcendent and has led to kind of like we talk about in the psychedelic space, like a template, right? Like, oh, this is possible. And then bringing mm-hmm. that back out into the sober space, uh, sober, right? Question mark, sober, caffeine, SSRI, what are you on? You know what I mean? So it's like, how mm-hmm. does one begin, Irina, to talk about this in a safe way? To talk about, to kind of, actually funny enough, my friend Daniel, who started San Francisco Psychedelic Society, he would talk about coming out of the psychedelic closet. Mm. <laughs> so is that what you're speaking to? More of the process of how do we talk about this? Or how do we talk about this as as therapists? Or how? Yeah, yeah. that was a good question. <laughs> <All the> above. <laughs> totally, because I mean, I have talked about it, right? Um, was it Kayla Fenton was the first one I was talking about the breath orgasm. So I have talked about it. Like it's already out. I'm out of the closet. I'm out of the closet. Okay, um, but it's like. I feel like I'm climbing in a very scary territory here, but I'm curious if you have any advice and or navigating this space. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it sounds like what you're speaking to is just this concept of like being a therapist and being a human uh-huh. <laughs> at the same time. I mean, first off, like being a therapist is is really freaking weird. Like yeah. what a weird job. <laughs> you know? What a weird, like, I'm going to get to know the depths of your soul while you don't really know many details about me at all. <laughs> and And the thing that I often like talk about with both that I've talked about, like as as a client myself with therapists and also as a therapist with my client, is like, even though you don't know like the details of someone in that type of depth and that type of connection, there's no way that you just don't, that you don't know the core of the person. Like you do know the person, you know, my clients know me, they do. I know my therapist, even though I like literally know no details about her life you know I'm like okay we worked together for six years I know her there's not going to be something that happens where I'm like oh my god this whole time like I had no idea that you were actually this like mean terrible person right I think in some ways it's it's really sweet because like those details almost don't matter to a Mm -hmm. certain point you know like where'd you go to school and we're I I mean there are a lot of identity pieces that really do matter for sure and I don't want to pretend like nothing none of that does and in fact pulling those identity pieces into the therapeutic relationship is I think really important Mm -hmm. Um, and talking about identity differences and how that impacts our clients is like part of the therapy itself so I'm definitely not one of those therapists that's like a blank slate you know I'm not going to share anything about me I think I use those pieces of my identity and experience to to bring into the therapy process but other than that you know the more specific like here's a psychedelic experience that I had here's a sexual experience that I had here's you know like I'm dating this person who you know because they're your exes whatever which happens in the queer community like all the time (laughs) it can be challenging to navigate but also there's some sort of uh sweetness about it like oh wait we 
actually are like this relationship is real we are actually humans with each other too we're not just these cardboard cutouts you know like oh yes i am here to therapize you today um, and i've definitely had my fair share of interactions with clients where they're like oh I saw you at this thing, or I know someone who knows you, or, you know, I listened to podcasts you were on, whatever. Sure. <laughs> that's, that I'm like, oh, yeah, that, that's, that's me. me. How, yeah. how did that impact hey. you? Let's talk about it. Let's incorporate that into the therapy. What's it like to, to get to, like, be closer to me in a way? Yeah, totally. Absolutely. And, and I think even more nuanced, one of my professors who works predominantly in the kink space was talking about the nature of even that, right? Like how many play spaces and dungeons are there in your city? You walk into yeah, that space definitely. and you see someone there that you like, and like he was saying, anyone who's vanilla, right? Or whatever label would be completely horrified by that. And like having maybe a more nuanced answer to like identity formation, right? Of like, where is this person on that, right? Are they brand new? So that's yeah, like an yeah, absolutely yeah, crazy yeah. situation to see your therapist in that space. Or is this someone right. that has been in the scene for 20 plus years, seeing your therapist on a St. Andrew's cross does nothing to them, right? And like the new nuanced nature of that, we're, we're going to do an independent study together so I can get more of like what this looks like in the, in the spring because I'm like Dr. Berkey I don't know how I'm gonna do this but, uh. <laughs> but yeah I mean that's like the nuanced nature and I, I at least enjoy the podcast space because I feel like it's a space where I can take up more space in a very like humanistic here I am this is what I do you know where it's not like versus the energy container of a therapy space where I'm not sharing all of my pieces, right? But it is absolutely complicated. Then if a client does come on and learn all of this stuff, which I guess usually then I'm like, cool, let's talk about it, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, let's mm -hmm. talk about it. It's funny that this is what we're talking about because I actually saw my therapist at a memorial service that I went to oh, wow. um, just, just last week week <laughs> and uh, I, yeah it was it was like a really healing experience for me actually because the first time that we saw each other in person at an event was, was gosh it was I think it, it must have been like six years ago or something like that and it was it was actually really like pretty destabilizing for me really? at, at that time I wasn't expecting to see her there it was a huge conference I didn't know anyone else and the one person I saw who I knew literally the moment after I was like oh it's so nice to just be at a conference and be anonymous this is so interesting <laughs> and then I look up and I see her looking at me I was like are you kidding me? oh my god <laughs> not real um and then at this memorial service like six years later she I'm not um, in therapy with her anymore, but she like came up to me and I just like immediately hugged her, introduced oh. her to one of my besties. It was just such a like full circle process to be like, oh my gosh, right. Like we get to connect in this like really sweet human space. Yeah. It was really healing for me to kind I'm of see sure. the, yeah, the end of that cycle. Absolutely. Yeah. To have that moment, that human moment, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Which is great. Exactly. And my, my big large hope, right, is that like therapy is becoming such a strong like power force within society in some ways, mm -hmm. right, as like larger capitalistic structures like BetterHelp are pushing this sort of content out for everybody. Everyone's like, oh, therapy, 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 therapy. And it's like, we're humans. 
Mm-hmm. To not mm-hmm. dare. I mean, we know a lot, right? Like we know a lot. We've trained. This is our thing. But it's also like we are humans and like humans mess up. Humans have bias. Humans have problems, yeah. right? It's like if we yeah. start to like idolize therapy as the source of truth, which kind of like we were saying earlier, given like the book and throwing the book, the DSM, it sounds like the Bible, right? The, the, we're throwing <laughs> yeah. the book at the Same people. Thing. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh-huh. Like there's a lot of harm that is going to be done with this level of power on society. So like part of my hope too, in this larger conversation of creating this is also to like change that, right? Like you're a human, you saw your therapist at, you know, a service. I'm a human. I mess up, right? Like just kind of like bringing that in, I think is really important in our current like cultural context. Yeah. And in fact, it's like the places that we mess up are oftentimes some of the biggest places of insight and growth for our clients and for ourselves, I think. With that example, actually, when my therapist was at that first conference that I was mentioning, I had told her that I was going to that conference and she didn't tell me she was going to be there. (laughs) And she messed up. She did. She really, and there was a little bit of a rupture in our relationship after that. And she brought it in and we talked about it. Mm. And I was reflecting on this after I saw her uh, last week where you know, without that moment, there's so much that I wouldn't have learned about myself. She was able to really use that moment to a deepen our connection because we were able to have that, that real talk of like, Mm -hmm. how did that impact you? Let's go there and B actually reflect on, wait, why was it surprising or shocking? Or, you know, why was I like, oh God, what is she doing here? As opposed to like, oh my gosh, she's here. (laughs) Right. and, And then all of my history and past stuff that came into that dynamic sure. um it was honestly like one of one of the the biggest points of reflection and learning for me with within that therapeutic relationship mm. so had she been so-called the perfect therapist which doesn't exist and in fact it's kind of like the perfect parent there's no such thing and in yeah. fact if a parent is too perfect then they're then they're fucking up too mm-hmm. <laughs> because if someone is is like too you know by the rules and never makes a mistake then the child just doesn't get to learn anything about how to make repairs and how to be okay with messing up and how to be messy and how to be real like that's just all part of the process so yeah, if she hadn't hadn't so-called messed up, which I don't right. even see it as, as right. that, then I wouldn't have learned so much about myself. Uh, but I hate that because I have <laughs> to internalize that lesson, Irina, and it's hard. I come into supervision and I'm like, I want to be perfect. I want to do it well because I care, right? I care. I want to show up as best I can. I want to do it. And then like, you know, supervision trying to give me back, well, Nicole, you're not going to be perfect. You're going to be human. I've been trying to like integrate this lesson yeah. of like, yes, the rupture and repair of even that relationship is part of like the healing and growth process. But like, yeah. ooh, as a perfectionist, that is hard. That is hard to internalize. It is hard. It's hard. And I think about it a lot, like as a white person, um, it, through the lens of anti-racism work, it's like, I am going to fuck up. There yeah. is literally no world in which I don't. The only world in which I don't is if I just like freeze and do nothing. Right. And that's not the answer right? Like if we freeze and do nothing, then that actually is fucking up. <laughs> so the only way to um, to do it right is to mess up. Like that really is. And and then to like be like, oh my God, I like did the wrong thing. I said the wrong thing. I could have done this better. Like, and instead of panicking and making it all about yourself, being like, thank you to everyone who's given feedback. Thank you for all the lessons that I've learned. And like, now I can do better, you know? And like, 
not that it's like not a big deal if someone messes up it can really impact people it can really hurt people and at the same time like if we just get stuck in those moments then we can't move forward and actually make things better mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then realizing what level of that is like a somatic experience too right at least for me like we start to have conversations and didactics about like what it means to decolonize psychedelic healing and then i just go like dear god i don't even want to work in this space at all because it's so fraught with so many issues and i notice how much my body goes yep out 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 mm-hmm. out i'm not going there and then i think i feel that a lot sometimes when i think about like kink and then this will, episode will be following an episode of someone who did um legal uh witness scene for bdsm cases of like death and other sorts of complicated things and so then i start to be like out 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 i don't even want right. to touch i don't even want to touch any of this because this is scary and very complicated you know what i mean and like noticing right. that somatic response that's happening in my body to be able to like right. sit with that and like not run away from that like learning right. process which is frequently rather uncomfortable yeah 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 and, and then the irony too is that people who end up having a response like that to issues around um responsibility and you know like these like potential harms that can be caused in those spaces like people who are like oh my god oh my god this is like so intense this is a lot are actually the people who should stay (laughs) 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 because the people who are like yeah whatever you know those are the people who should leave (laughs) yeah exactly it's like you realize the weight you realize the importance of all of this and um and it's real like if you like really let yourself sit with just what a deep responsibility holding these spaces is it's a lot it's a lot it's really overwhelming which is also why i really love working at a nonprofit clinic where Mm. we we work as a team a lot of the time and we support each other and it doesn't feel like it's just one individual yeah on you know in the entire system um, I feel like I'll always just be like a team type of a person. Sure. Um, but yeah, I, I think that also speaks to something that could be an entirely different podcast, which is the concept of cancel culture. And go know, for it. You know, it's like people need to be allowed to make mistakes. People also need to have accountability for the mistakes that they make and for the harm that's caused and we need to have enough openness and I I know this can be like a tricky thing to talk about because it it comes with a lot of trauma and a lot of people being hurt but like we need to develop enough openness and enough systems where people can make mistakes can feel supported in repairing after those mistakes and so that it's not like this fear of like I'm gonna fuck up once and then my entire career will be over because the entire public will plaster my mistake all over the internet all over billboards all over Twitter like everything right it's like how do we in this bigger way develop more of a society where where we can actually come at all of our mistakes from a place of compassion yes how how Irina how (laughs) Well, you know, I'll just, I'll just tell you. Yeah. <laughs> Two minutes, yeah, no. Yeah, A plus B and we'll get there, right? <laughs> big deal. I have all the answers, clearly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I know I... I one of the many problems I will have made in my life, right? And many mistakes I will continue to make of like being raised uh, fundamentalist Christian and condemning homosexuals to find out that I was queer later. And I'm like, that was a fun journey. You know what I mean? Like there's so many parts of that process. And I continue to make mistakes and we'll continue to make mistakes until we 
we die, right? Like we're always so limited by our existential lens, you know, and what we're able to see, what we choose to learn more about when we're able to sit with that somatic response and stay connected in community enough to keep going into that growing process. I mean, that will never end. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think uh, this kind of goes back to a point that you were making earlier of um, just overlapping communities. Like at Alchemy, our whole thing is to train clinicians who are part of the communities that we serve. So we inevitably, just every day, there's overlapping communities of like, oh gosh, like, is this person, is like my roommate going to invite one of my clients over for my birthday party? You know, like all of these things um, that, that we constantly talk about internally at Alchemy it's a lot to navigate. It's, you know, it's a lot to navigate and it's, it's just so different than this like Freudian concept of, you know, the therapist is the expert and the client is the person on the couch. Although we do have people lie on couches <laughs> with their own ketamine. <laughs> it's a little different. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It is a little bit different, but yeah, I mean, I think maybe some more like moral of the story, like some things to think about are like, I don't know, deeper community connection, right? Being able to like balance your ideas, like you said, in that collective, right? Bounce your ideas off of other people, have other people that will be there with you through that process. And like the more that we can do this in a community connection rather than like that silo of the individual, the better place we'll be in. Not that I know the answers of how to get to the like the dream utopian new society, but like some answers might be like connect more, bounce ideas off of other people and like sit in collaboration with that. And when it gets uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and there's so many people doing this work already, right? Like Adrian Mary Brown is, is someone who comes to mind. You know, one of the things just making a quick plug too, is we have a ketamine training coming up yeah. <laughs> uh, through alchemy, alchemytrainings.org. But it's honestly, we've been doing these trainings internally for our staff. And just recently we've started to open it back up to the public. So this is our second round of doing academy training for providers that are outside of our organization. And I just like bawled at the end of the last training and mm -hmm. in, in the last Zoom meeting that we had together as a group, I didn't realize how impactful it would be for me to actually meet other like-minded wow. psychedelic therapists, like community yeah. mental health, social justice, harm reduction people. Mm -hmm. And then seeing in our last Zoom meeting, these people, this a group of 40 people who had been through our training for seven weeks, ending up, you know, completing the training, I just like started crying and was just like, oh my gosh, it is, this work can just be so isolating. And even if you're like, oh, I found the psychedelic people, you know, then like the psychedelic people, it's like such a wide range of people and such a wide range of beliefs and different perspectives on on so many, yeah, on so many really important issues. And it's so to like within that larger group really find your people mm. and be like oh like you actually get it and we yeah. can actually support each other is just such a such a beautiful feeling and really I think I don't think that psychedelic therapy work or therapy work in general can happen safely without uh, a context of being held in a group and yeah receiving support yeah when I first saw you in didactics like and you had come in to talk to us you were so happy and i remember texting alana and being like how is irena so happy because i want that kind of joy and i think it was also <laughs> the context of like obviously like i it was like the beginning of trying to be a therapist right like like learning how to hold that level of stories and other things on top of school so obviously i was stressed beyond you know whatever amount of capacity but like 
you're in community. I would, I'm making assumptions that that's part of where the joy comes from, but I should ask, you know, like you, you, you do such, you know, community work that I would say is heavy, I would imagine, right? Like, how do you keep that joy through that work? Yeah, it's it's interesting because you saw me in a didactic where I was presenting with Bill Marie, Bill Marie um, Fraguada Narlock, who is one of my besties. And she's such a good example of someone who's just really been like, we've really been holding each other up for for like at least at least a decade. Yeah, a little more than a decade at this Aww. point. And we live in to in different states, you know, but she's someone that I'm in touch with actually almost daily. So, and she gets it, you know, yeah. like, like, so I'm like, yes, like you completely understand what I mean. I don't have to explain like the intricacies of like, well, no, this person said this thing, but it like, well, you see like through this framework and this lens, here's why it's un unjust and all of that. So absolutely, that brings me joy. Just being with her brings me joy and being with my friends and community brings me a lot of joy. And it's funny because I've been doing community mental health work now for um, in some way, in some way or another, like outreach work for almost, what, 15 years, I think. Wow. So from one perspective, I feel really jaded <laughs> as a therapist. And I really see myself more as a social worker, even though I have mm -hmm. a therapy license sure. uh, in, in some ways, you know. Could you explain that? I don't. I don't think everyone will catch what that means. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have a funny example of that actually at the Harm Reduction Therapy Center. At my my other job, where I also work with people who use drugs in a different way, we do mobile therapy. So we set up an outreach van outside and just do free therapy on the streets for folks, mostly who are unhoused. And we had to put up this this uh, canopy the other day to protect people from the sun, and I couldn't find anything to like strap the canopy down so that it didn't fly away and I just like went in there and like grabbed a latex glove and like turned the latex glove into like a little tie you know and just like sure. I was like this is just what you do this is what you do and one of my supervisors there was like wow Irina you really are such a social worker because I think like <laughs> I see being a social worker as kind of just like working with what you got making it happen being very just like oriented towards like getting shit done and navigating the systems that oftentimes don't provide you or don't provide your clients with the things that they need to survive. Yeah. So then you're like, all right, how do we actually navigate this? And how do we get into like the stuff that a lot of therapists try to avoid, which is, do you have housing? Do you have food? Do you have safety? Do you have shelter? You know, all of those basic needs that like for me as a therapist, I'm like, how the hell can you pretend to be a therapist if you're meeting with a client and just talking about emotions when they don't have any of that other stuff addressed, how are you showing care to the person? If you're like, oh, like, tell me about how you feel about not having food. Like, oh, you feel hungry. How does that feel in your body? You know? Yeah, you have depression. <laughs> yeah. Mm. <laughs> right, right, exactly. It's like, no, like, you're hungry. You don't have food. Let's talk about how to get you food. Let's look up resources together. Let's spend the next 50 minutes instead of just sitting here in silence or sitting here talking about your feelings and your thoughts getting shit done because that's the type of support that you need right now um so anyway well, i don't even know what i was talking about i can go on a whole how, you, how you were joyful work. yeah how you were joyful uh, yeah right there we go i stepped into the into the anger towards the system side <laughs> which is needed yes and yes and but <laughs> yeah. well, and i feel like in some ways being in some ways, like being jaded is what helps me feel joyful. Like in some ways, just being like, oh, you want housing in San Francisco? Good fucking luck. Yeah, I don't know how the hell you're going to make that work. You know, in some ways, just like being so like real and concrete and just like 
facing the harsh realities of what my clients face like I, i've um or like seeing the harsh realities that my clients face in such a like real and transparent way and seeing how my clients are still resilient no matter what you know and just like pushing through i used to i worked in jails for for some time doing like counseling there and just like witnessing the humor the love the care just everything that that my clients had despite all of their challenging circumstances in life or maybe because of seeing how they live and seeing how they survive and just having so much respect for my clients helps me hold on to that hope helps me hold on to that joy you know helps me be like oh my god like life fucking sucks society is awful there's so many things that are so broken and so many systems that are just complete hell and seeing the ways that my clients are able to hold both of those worlds to hold the challenges in life while also still having access to the to the joy I feel like it's kind of like remembering that we're all gonna die and how remembering that we're all gonna die at some point is part of what can make it feel more joyful to be alive you know or feel like we can actually appreciate the moments that we have to be alive more so it's like like this almost like duality of you know because of how hard things are that's why we have to access the joy Mm -hmm. well one of my favorite quotes actually is from tom robbins novelist and he wrote this quote in one of his books life is too serious to take that seriously Mm -hmm. (laughs) i feel like that really sums it up it's like life is so freaking serious and so intense and so hard and because of that, we have to push even harder to not take everything so seriously yeah. and to find moments of joy and connection and pleasure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think you can do more radical activism in that space, right? I'm always talking about that, like that shutdown space of the trauma response to all the pain that is 100% very, 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 very real, right? And like, what's that space of also joy to be able to do more work? I've talked about this a few times. Like if we think about like this as like a long-term war that we wanna change our society, Mm -hmm. like we can't stay in the flight, fight, freeze, fall in response all day long to do that long work. So like when you're joyful and when you're with your clients and they're inspiring you and vice versa, right? Like we're able to do more in that space in the long run of this work. Yep, yep. Yeah. And and that's such a big piece that I tried to bring into ketamine therapy too, is that, Mm -hmm. or into all therapy, but um, I think of ketamine sessions and preparing clients for that and really try to emphasize, you know, it's not just about doing the hard work in therapy. It's also about reaccessing these spaces of, oh, I get to feel relaxed. I get to feel maybe... I get to feel neutral even. I get to feel like that war isn't happening in my body right now. Maybe it doesn't even feel joyful. Maybe it just feels like nothing. And that for some people is radical, right? So I oftentimes just reemphasize that. And I've had so many clients who've actually had some of their most healing experiences happen from just like laughing for a whole three hours. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So much healing in that space of joy. Well, Irina, I know that we've talked about a lot and I think part of my hope too one day is that like 
even within like my focus on sex and kink, right? Like something like kink is really, can be really complicated. There's a lot of people that put that into a pathology that put that into a negative space. And I think in the very similar ways that we have put like substances into a very negative space, like there's a full continuum of that from like harm reduction mm -hmm. to pleasure enhancement. Well, it's, it's all the same stuff, right? From my perspective, kink is drugs. Kink is literally like you're setting up the set and setting <laughs> relationship drug. You're you're just accessing the drug in a different way. Endorphins. You know, you might be accessing the drug instead of like taking a pill, you're accessing it by receiving flogging. Like, great. That is just making the drug come out of your body in a different way. So it, it all feels like exactly the same. And kink is psychedelic as hell. <laughs> so many dynamics that come up just like they do in psychedelic therapy not just like but you know a similar. lot of really similar yeah very very similar so where's the book on that who's who's writing the book on that I'm looking for it I'm, I'm looking <laughs> for it and I guess at that point that's where you're like okay I gotta do it I guess here we go here we go yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and there, there are a lot of people talking about the overlap of the two I think um yeah, uh, Letitia Brown is someone who comes to mind. Uh, yeah, Britta, Laura, May Northrup. A lot of folks are are uh, are definitely in that scene and in that space talking about it. Totally. And I didn't even use the time when we talked. I talked to Britta and Laura, and I didn't even talk fully about this. We like riffed on capitalism for a good amount of time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's been such a pleasure to chat with you. I'll hold a little bit of space here in case there was something you wanted to share. Otherwise, I have a closing question I ask every guest, and then I'll have an opportunity for you to plug all of your stuff at the end as well. Mm. The only thing that I would want to share is just a little bit more about alchemy, but it sounds like I can do that at the end. Yep. Okay, cool. yep, yep, yep. Okay. Well, I know we've talked a lot about various things, and I really appreciate you coming onto the podcast space and sharing your expertise with all the listeners. The one question I ask every guest on the show is what is one thing that you wish other people knew was more normal? Was more normal. Normal is an interesting question. <laughs> hey, anarchist check, anarchist check. <laughs> I, I joke every time now. If someone doesn't question that, I'm like, hmm. <laughs> What's what's more normal is there's no such thing as normal. Totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, really, it's like like there's no such thing as like the right or wrong way, and that everyone is such a such an individual. And to just like come into every relationship questioning all the judgments that you have and questioning all the assumptions that you have, and actually just stepping into every relationship that you have, whether it be with drugs or with new friends or with someone walking down the street, and just being open and being curious about what their normal is and what yeah. normal means to them and yeah. why that's what yeah. their so-called normal <laughs> is. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Embracing that curiosity and the space for all of us to be authentic in our own unique way. Yeah. Yeah. And curiosity, I think is, is such a um, useful tool and that one of my mentors and my supervisor, HRTC, uh, Maurice Bird, has really 
he he uses that term a lot you know this like mm. deep sense of inquisitive curiosity how to come into life always being deeply curious like like a baby opening its eyes up and being like what is all of this stuff around us what is this and it's like I feel like for us we oftentimes need psychedelics to get back into that space and then we can go into this place of like wait but who are you tell me about your life and how to bring in how to integrate <laughs> that that vibe into just our day-to-day interactions and yeah. be like who are you and why Mm -hmm. we don't need an excuse of being on psychedelics to do it (laughs) absolutely absolutely new neuronal pathways we build them Mm -hmm. we stay there yes where would you want to plug for all the things that you're involved in that you'd want listeners to be able to connect with yeah, well, the biggest plug that I want to make is definitely for Alchemy, Alchemy Community Therapy Center. It's alchemytherapy.org. And we are a 501c3 nonprofit in Oakland, California, like I was saying. We are just a really like small nonprofit trying to do what, what we really love to do, which is making psychedelic therapy equitable and accessible to folks who, who need it um, and folks who are specifically impacted by systemic traumas and oppression. Mm-hmm. So it's hard. It's really hard to do this work because a lot of people are like, yay, that's such great work. And then we're like, okay, but give us money, please. Anyone? Hello? (laughs) If you know any rich people out there looking for a place to donate, I think this was such a topic that came up at the psychedelic science conference and people kept talking about it as, as Mm. this, you know, beautiful idea. And I'm like, all right, cool. Like the sort of social worker part of like, cool, now give us the money. (laughs) Let's make it happen. Because we are really doing the best that we can. But, you know, we need to create a more financially sustainable system where we can pay our therapists more. We pay our trainees for every hour of work that they do, which is uncommon for a lot of places where folks are uh, accruing hours towards licensure, but we're really doing the best that we can. And I want us to do better, but in order for us to do better, we need more money. So also if people want to sign up for academy and training, that's one of the things that fuels the the financial support. Mm -hmm. You're doing really powerful work for the world. So thank you. Thank you. Likewise. If you enjoyed today's episode, then leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast and head on over to modernanarchypodcast.com to get resources and learn more about all the things we talked about on today's episode. I want to thank you for tuning in and I will see you all next week.